Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today I am joined by Din Shemistri, research fellow and lecturer in the Rule of Law program at Stanford Law School. He's actually affiliated or doing research with five of Stanford's seven schools. And so the audience challenge today is to find out with which schools he is not formally collaborating. Send us a message if you figure it out and we will tweet about it. Dinsha, welcome to the Saspot. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for making time. You are a busy, busy person. Tell us about everything you're doing at Stanford. Let's, <laughs> let's start broad and then we will zoom in as the podcast goes on. Okay. Uh, well, I'm uh, the a lecturer and research fellow in the Rule of Law program. I have this interesting project called the Rule of Non-Law Project that I work with. So even though I'm in the Rule of Law program, I'm the Rule of Non-Law fellow, I like to tell people. It sounds good. Uh, it sounds so good. Uh, and a lot of our work focuses on South Asia and, and in India through there. Uh, from that program, we're looking at workarounds to formal legal strategies. Uh, things that people basically have to do to make life work for themselves, uh, things that the government has to do sometimes to make sure that the policies and goals that they're setting out are actually realized. Uh, and we look at it primarily in India, but honestly, we'll do anything in South Asia or elsewhere. Uh, and that's led us to a lot of different collaborations across the university that you're mentioning. So tell us about some of those collaborations, and then um, uh, after that, I'll ask you specifically about the role of non-law non program. Sounds good. Uh, so the closest collaborations that we've got is with the uh, Freeman Spogli Institute at CDDRL, which is where I'd originally come to Stanford uh, with my postdoc, and then connected with the law school. Uh, so from there, we work on a lot of uh, issues looking at things like, for instance, uh, property rights, and uh, various forms of uh, laws and conditions that people say are necessary for economic development to take place. So there's this mantra, basically, I would say, uh, championed by all kinds of economists from different stripes, uh, saying that you need the right kinds of institutions, the right kinds of legal rights and, and uh, norms to achieve economic development. Uh, lo and behold, countries like India oftentimes don't have those, mm -hmm. and yet, we see economic miracles taking place. So for us, the big question is why? Uh, and this is a really important question because if you can understand why it's happening, why this, why this economy is emerging the way it is, perhaps you don't need to do the really expensive overhauls of institutions that people say that you need, or you can perhaps learn some lessons that you could take elsewhere and help other places uh, develop economically, uh, places that might have different uh, uh, legal systems or political systems or even cultures from uh, what India has. So we've been doing that. This has mainly been with the FSI, 
Uh, we've got collaborators in India. I think it's always very important to work with people in India. Uh, so right now we've we've hired, I think, the best property rights lawyer in India uh, to do some research with us, uh, where we're looking at various kinds of property rights laws across the country. It's very exciting. So. Um, there is this kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, I guess that everything that you say about India, the opposite is also true. Is, is that what's happening here? Is, is, does India not follow a predictable pattern? Is that what you're saying in terms of economics? Definitely. Uh, India is 18% of the world's population uh, and a growing, it's the ninth largest economy in the world just by the overall volume. Uh, in terms of GDP per capita, it's a lot smaller, of course. Uh, but just by sheer, vir sheer virtue of its size, uh, you've got many, many different things happening all at once. Uh, a lot of regional and, and localized variation, a lot of variation over time. Uh, it's oftentimes hard to, to say anything definitively. That's why I think it's really important to look at these on and off connections. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, sometimes some things we know will work in very contextualized circumstances, uh, and sometimes they won't. Uh, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of the, uh, the laws in India don't seem to be very propitious for economic development or if they are on paper, they're not enforced. One exception to that is the Indian stock market. So for the most part, it's a very well-run, very well-regulated stock market. This wasn't the case uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it, it changed in the late 1980s. Uh, the question is why, right? Why would the stock market adopt all of these largely Western market norms uh, to try and make uh, the flow of capital more smooth? Well, it happens that uh, the big bosses of Bombay business, uh, the big business houses, they all got together and they said, hey, look, we're going to need capital to feed the beast of the economy. And this is going to make us a lot more rich if we have competitive norms. And uh, yes, uh, in the short term, we might lose out a little bit because we won't be able to do the same kinds of things that we've previously been able to do. But long term, it's going to help us make more money. Right. That's really unique and that's pretty exciting uh, because there they actually adopted these kinds of uh, laws and, and competitive processes where we've seen in so many other cases so much pushback. Uh, trying to understand why that took place there, why something like that wouldn't happen in a place, say, like Pakistan or in some of the other stock markets or other markets in India, agriculture uh, comes to mind because it's, it's so frequently in the news. Uh, trying to think why a market might work in one place but not another, that's really exciting to, uh, to me as well as to my collaborators. So. Yeah, and, and, and no doubt exciting for the people that read the publications that come out of that. Uh, tell us about then, I think this is a natural segue right, to talk about the rule of non-law. And do you need to frame what the rule of law is before we go into the rule of non-law? <laughs> it was actually the first question they asked me on my US citizenship interview. They said, what's the rule of law, which was... <laughs> What was, what's the right answer? <laughs> well, well, it, was, like it felt somewhat ironic at the time because uh, it was um, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, the right answer is that nobody is above the law. So uh, I felt like saying theoretically, but probably <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> I, that wasn't the official answer. The official answer is nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the law. I like it. Mm -hmm. There's actually, so there's a lot of uh, different ways that people see rule of law. 
uh, everything from uh, sort of high-minded uh, checks and balances between uh, institutions within a country uh, and more democratic norms to on the ground, what's day-to-day -day life like, is the cop taking a bribe, that kind of thing, uh, the nobody is above the law sort of segment. Uh, we work in both dimensions. Uh, for the rule of non-law, we mainly, uh, we like to think a lot about the on the ground stuff that's going on because I think that has the most important implications for economic development, but you can't follow India or even the US for that matter without scratching your head thinking about the, I would say the more macro elements of the rule of law, separation of powers, how the uh, uh, experts might be respected or shunned, uh, those kinds of things. So in the rule of non-law, we're probing, we're trying to understand why we see the patterns that we see, how people relate to the law or how they ignore the law in a lot of cases uh, and how sometimes uh, workarounds or substitutes might fill in for the law. Mm -hmm. So. And you, your work is primarily in South Asia, primarily in India, or is this a, a global project? Uh, most of our work is in India and South Asia. Okay. We've had some stuff that's been international. So one of the papers that I'm working on right now with Eric Jensen, my collaborator, uh, as well as a student is about uh, spread of authoritarianism during COVID times. I think a lot of people right at the beginning of the pandemic expected uh, a lot of really big bang sorts of moves away from democracy. Uh, they thought that uh, emergency powers or other kinds of things would be used to basically seize countries. Uh, they, that, that was the expectation that leaders would do this kind of thing. We haven't seen that much of it. What we've seen is in countries where democracy was, was sliding, there's been gradual recession uh, that probably has nothing to do with COVID. I would expect, for instance, uh, some of these countries to have that same trajectory uh, or emergency powers just weren't really used for those kinds of purposes that were used to respond to the pandemic. There are exceptions, of course, Myanmar has slid. Right. Uh, and there was a very sudden uh, breakdown in democracy there. Uh, but for the most part, it's been far more gradual. Uh, however, most of our work is on India and South Asia. So uh, that's one larger project where we're looking around the world, but most of it is on India and South Asia. So I, it, I feel that, um... South Asia is portrayed, let me, how to frame this, because it's, I mean, it's both true and not true. There are a lot of workarounds, let's put it that way. And one way of negotiating life in South Asia is to negotiate the workarounds. Um, and that used to perhaps be more true than it is now, I don't know. But I also feel it's a, it's a somewhat colonial stereotype as well. So how do we tease those two out? Like, let's deal with the actual truth of the rule of non-law and give me some examples of what you're looking at in South Asia. Sure. Uh, so that's, yeah. So I think maybe I'll start with bribery and corruption sure. because that seems to be the, the most uh, pervasive or prevalent uh, form of rule of non-law. Uh, so oftentimes, if you want to say start a small business or get anything done in India, uh, a bribe will be expected. Uh, for our law students, especially for our uh, law students who are doing JD programs in the US, uh, that comes as quite a shock 
to them, right? Uh, US law students don't like to think of bribery or corruption being that big of a problem. Uh, it's good to put them in a position where they would have to think, okay, if I wanna do business in this country, I could sort of have this cognitive disillusionment that I'm not actually going to get my hands dirty. I would hire an accountant or somebody who would facilitate that kind of payment and say, yeah, it's not going on. Uh, but realistically, I think it's important for students to understand that if they're engaging in a business dealing in an emerging market, chances are that the people that they're working with uh, might be facilitating bad actions. Now, the question is, what can be done about that? Do you not work with the, the people or do you not work in that environment? You take a hardline stand saying, you're not gonna do it. Do you take a hardline stand saying, I will spend six months trying to do my best. And then after, you know, on day 181, I will uh, suck it up and do what's necessary. Mm -hmm. Do you take more of a, uh, uh, I guess a utilitarian approach where you say, okay, well, is the good gonna outweigh the bad? Mm -hmm. These are decisions that I think Everybody has to come to from a moral perspective on their own. Uh, but if you don't reflect on it, or if you don't think about it when you're in a neutral point, specifically when you're studying in school, you're going to not think and you're just going to act. Mm -hmm. And that's a dangerous thing. So in terms of our teaching, that's a really important point uh, that we try to make. In terms of our research, we draw it out in certain ways. We, we try to show the uh, both the good and the bad consequences of working in a system like that uh, and how we personally sometimes try and reason these things out. But we, uh, I'm talking about Eric, my collaborator, as well as other speakers that we bring in from outside the classroom. So, uh, yeah. So and how, how do you, I mean, you're just addressing this, but I want you to, I want to probe a little bit more um, because um, when we teach about South Asia to students who are not familiar with the region, um, it's, it's hard. I think it's often hard for students not to feel judgmental because it's so different to what they've been raised to believe is the mm -hmm. correct way. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I think this is my existential challenge in life. So <laughs> It, I think it's true for um, many teachers of South Asia. So yeah, enlighten us. How do we do this? Well, let me start by saying, I don't think it's necessarily bad to be judgmental. I think it's bad to be judgmental in one direction. So I'll, I'll be honest, when I grew up, uh, I grew up in the US, but I would go back to India from the 1980s on. And the thing that always left me scratching my head was why do things seem to work so well in America when they don't in India. Now, as I grew older, I started to see, okay, they actually just work differently in some respects in India. And in some respects, they actually, I, I do think they work worse. Uh, but then it's not like the US is a perfect example, uh, perfect country either. Uh, and I'll give you an example of, of something that I've done recently uh, where we, we probed at this. I was just mentioning bribery and corruption. Uh, I was giving a talk at uh, Ashoka University in India uh, in Delhi mm -hmm. uh, about bribery and corruption laws. And one of the students there, uh, actually several of the students, uh, I was pointing out the challenges of, of Indian corruption law and bribery law. And several of the students were asking about US bribery law. And I had to say, it's, it's actually quite problematic. Domestically, we've got some very weak laws in this country on bribery. Uh, and they kept probing, kept probing. And 
naturally as a result of that, that night I went on and just started reading all I could about US bribery law. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot has been written, uh, at least not academically about US bribery law. Uh, but we do have some very notable politicians who have been getting off scot-free right. uh, on both sides of the uh, political aisle, uh, uh, both sides of the aisle. Uh, and so with a co-author, we just wrote a law review article about how to fix the deficiencies in the US bribery law system. Mm -hmm. That came out and my co-author also brought something to it because she's been thinking about this quite a lot. Uh, but for me, the reason why I got interested in this is because I was in that classroom in India and I could not answer uh, what was going on with the US system and why it was so screwballed. So there's definitely a lot to be gained from doing comparison and I would say from being judgmental in both directions <laughs> but it has to be done very carefully that's right. for sure yes um now um I know you've been working or you, you you've been working on a project around honking in Kathmandu can you oh uh, that, that, <laughs> I've been I've been exciting I want to I hear should, more about it I should say I've been observing a project on honking uh, I have, fine. We'll, do, we'll go with observing <laughs> so you one of the uh, bugaboos that uh, I think a lot of us have uh, who come from very quiet areas in places like the US, especially academics, you know, that we like to be in ivory towers where everything is quiet and silent uh, or in our libraries, uh, is that when you go to India, you hear this constant honking in the big cities, uh, lots of noise all over the place. Uh, there's a professor at Chicago who didn't have the constant, he had the constant noise uh, not honking, but he ran an engine next to, to workers. He found that cognitive capacity, I might have these numbers wrong, but cognitive capacity diminished something like 20%. And he was running at the same decibel level as what you would find in a city like Delhi. Cognitive ca capacity diminished by about 20%. He said that there were other estimates that you would uh, lose your hearing about 10 years earlier, wow. uh, just from normal city traffic, city noise. Uh, and so there are lots of questions that just, you scratch your head about uh, when you see that. In Delhi, uh, a city I know reasonably well, uh, people sometimes wear helmets, they sometimes don't when they're on their motorcycles. Uh, sometimes uh, you see people following certain rules and, and not others. Even in the US, uh, sometimes people stop at stop signs and they don't, right? Uh, this sort of norm around what traffic laws we follow and which, which laws we don't is really intriguing to me. So in Kathmandu, since you mentioned it, uh, they decided that they didn't want honking anymore. And they've done a lot. They've actually succeeded from what I'm told in uh, reducing the amount of noise pollution that comes from honking uh, through a variety of different means and measures and methods. I'm very interested in figuring out how that happened, whether it was people convincing cops that they could collect money, uh, collect fines, I should say, uh, from enforcing the laws. In all of these cities, th there are laws that, that say, I think Delhi has something like 200 uh, quiet zones where you're not allowed to honk around hospitals and schools primarily, mm -hmm. uh, but people still honk and those laws go unenforced. I don't know if you, the trick is to convince police officers that it's good to collect fines there. I don't know if it's good to do some kind of publicity or awareness campaign uh, targeting the masses. Uh, I don't know if it's a good idea. I know somebody who's recently tried to approach Uber and Uber's competitor in Delhi and has been trying to tell them that they should do advertising campaigns about how their drivers don't honk. Mm. I think that there are a lot of different cuts and ways to 
to address these kinds of problems. For me, the interesting thing is that you've just got this kind of variation. Yeah. Uh, and if, if we can learn something from that, then hopefully we can apply uh, what we learn and, and uh, improve whatever, whatever other cities there are like that. Another good example I would say is, is rickshaw drivers. Uh, in some cities you get ripped off in India, in some cities you don't have to worry about it. Even yeah. in some areas within some cities you see that. Yeah. Uh, lots of local level variation. Uh, that brings up another project I'm doing right now on, and this is with, uh, I, I believe Jenna Forsyth was on your podcast a couple of, of weeks earlier. Yeah. Uh, and she was focused on Bangladesh where they've had lead chromate added to turmeric. Uh, we've subsequently started to expand that project. So we've covered India now. Mm -hmm. We're looking at Pakistan, Nepal, and Sri Lanka as well in the big markets there. And what we're finding is in Bangladesh, lead chromate, which is a real danger for a lot of people, uh, was in a lot of the turmeric. Uh, in India, it's, it's there in certain places and not in other places. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, why do we see this kind of variation? Uh, again, if we can learn why it's not in some areas, perhaps we can try and encourage these other areas where it is there uh, to not have this lead chromate being added. Right. I, I can explain lead makes the, the turmeric a brighter yellow. Customers prefer brighter yellow. Uh, people can also add other kinds of adulterants in if it looks brighter yellow, so. So that sounds in a way about um, uh, communication. Like if people understand that the bright yellow doesn't mean it's better quality. In fact, it might slowly kill you, then that, that might um, affect consumer um, understanding. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, so some of the examples are around traffic and I think probably most people, we do what we can get away with in terms of driving. <laughs> um, from your perspective, I mean, when I first moved to, the, to Wisconsin from London, like stop signs were nothing more than very subtle suggestions as far as I was concerned. <laughs> we would never actually stop at a stop sign in London. And I was honked at so much uh, by Wisconsin drivers because you really are expected to kind of, you know, count to three before you move. So I learned my lesson fast. Um, but do you think people or does your research evidence that people follow rules better if they agree with them or in some way understand their point or are most people just kind of rule followers and then are we rule followers as long as we're worried about getting caught? So it's more about the consequences than the rule. And to what extent is all of that cultural? These are, these are the deep questions, not just <laughs> of our time, but I think you can find Aristotle and, and Plato and great Indian thinkers as well debating right, uh, yeah. about these kinds of issues. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I will say when you were mentioning about uh, driving and breaking the, the rules, I. There's definitely, I would say, a cultural expectation that certain rules and certain laws are, it's okay to break them. And then there's certain hardline rules and laws that no one would break regardless. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that has nothing to do with punishment, uh, uh, whether you would get caught or not. For instance, uh, people just wouldn't do certain things. Uh, and so that I think it... It varies not just on geography, but on the rules and the laws that are there. Uh, it's a really complicated question. It's something that we're trying to unpack, uh, but I think what we try to do is much more on the ground, localized or local level kinds of unpacking uh, in specific instances. 
Uh, I think previous research, one of the challenges has been that they have been trying, a, a lot of people have tried to come up with sweeping ways about how people think about rules. So you'll get people who write, it's all about the punishment that you can inflict, or it's all about how clear you can make a law, uh, or it's all about uh, uh, looking just at, at societal structures and, and communities. And they're all right, but that also means they're all wrong because they're not, these are very, con I think, contextual elements, right? So certain environments and certain rules will have a different outcome. Uh, and it's interesting to see where one might matter more than the other. Uh, but it's not true that there's only one right answer in this space. It's a little theoretical and confusing. I, I'm not sure if I no, completely no, I think, I, that, think yeah. I think your answer um, is uh, appropriate to the complexity of the question and the fact that it's already been debated for 10,000 years or whatever. <laughs> I, do, I do feel that it's very relevant in terms of COVID. We've, we've had to learn to negotiate so many new rules in the past year, and I do feel that... Um, for instance, uh, mask mandates where, you know, the, the, the rules have changed, but also our understanding of what happens has changed. In a way, what I find interesting about COVID is that the quote unquote general population's knowledge is only really one day behind the experts. Like this is so new. Yeah. And so they find out something, <laughs> they communicate it to us and we're like, okay, great. Now, um, well, now let me we tell you about that project. Well, let me tell you about that project. If that's okay. Yeah, of course. So uh, <laughs> that's really interesting that you brought that up. Uh, we just had a paper published in a public health journal. Uh, I was working with a professor named Prashant Loyalka at the education school. I get really excited, as you can tell, collaborating with, with different people. It's amazing uh, how you do it. And, and for our audience here, looking out for the two non-existent, not yet collaborative schools, we, we have some hints going in. Yes, keep <laughs> going. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So we were interested at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, this was true in the US, I would say, as well as what we were hearing in South Asia. Uh, a lot of rules and instructions uh, where people would say, uh, wear a mask, keep socially distant six feet and the like. And this was really important. Uh, but we were wondering, especially in the context of education, whether that's the right way of teaching people how to take care of themselves during COVID. I work separately with a program uh, that has 30,000 students coming in across urban areas in Northern India. It's a free English program, uh, employment focused. It's trying to help poor kids get good white collar jobs in India. Uh, and we've been working with them for two or three years. So we asked them if we could do some experimenting uh, on how we can teach about COVID best. <clears throat> And this puzzle that we had, sorry, the door was. It's okay, we're podcasting okay. from home. That's just a reality. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this puzzle was uh, basically, if we gave people clear and concise instructions, uh, or if we gave people clear and concise instructions with a little bit of explanation uh, about the science behind it, uh, what would work better? A lot of public health officials actually say that just the clear and concise instructions alone mm -hmm. is much better, especially mm -hmm. for education or populations that might have lower education, might be lower on the economic totem pole. Uh, 
being as, as clear and concise, just saying, do this, don't do that without any kind of scientific explanation, uh, a lot of people say is much better. Growing up in the US again, uh, there were a lot of anti-drug campaigns. The most famous was, you know, don't do drugs, just say no, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. dare. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't know which would work better, whether these public health experts that were saying, keep it simple uh, or giving a little bit of conceptual knowledge uh, would work well. Uh, so we took, uh, thankfully we had about 8,000 students who we could keep in touch with uh, over the internet. Uh, and we took a random sample. Uh, we did what's called a randomized control trial. One third of the students, uh, we didn't give any information to about COVID. One third, we gave these simple instructions and one third, we gave the simple instructions with a little bit of uh, conceptual understanding. And then we observed the students over the next three weeks, we kept monitoring them. Uh, and the, I'm happy to say that the students who got the minimal instructions, they did better than, than no instructions at all. They showed improvement in terms of knowledge, attitude and self-reported behaviors. Uh, well, we were, I guess, surprised to find that the, uh, the conceptual explanations giving some, some context behind why you might wanna wear a mask or keep six feet apart actually really improved knowledge as well as attitudes, but also most importantly, behavior, uh, compliance with these practices. Explaining why it's important to wear a mask, how the virus works and how it might be transmitted really seems to, to help people want to wear a mask. So for education, this is a big deal, right? It, it means that we shouldn't just assume small little bite-sized chunks are going to be best. We should actually appreciate students and the complexities uh, that they're able to handle these kinds of complexities. Uh, we should try and teach them at a higher level. For public health communication or for communication more generally, I think that uh, I would be very keen to see whether this would work in other contexts, but my suspicion is providing the concepts uh, could really help. So for instance, don't tell people just not to smoke cigarettes or not to do drugs, but actually explain to them what drugs might do or what cigarettes might do long-term for your health consequences. Don't show like some lung just rotting away, but actually explain to them biomechanically uh, what, the what the process might be for that. Could go a long way in, in trying to uh, improve public health outcomes. It's so that's quite, quite intuitive that, that 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 makes so much sense. Um, it, it, I'm curious, and we don't have time to go into that now, but like, <laughs> I mean, uh, presumably the idea is that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, so that people then start up making their own minds with their uninformed, but presumably it's quite paternalistic, but anyway, I don't know yeah. that for sure, but that's what it feels like. Um, but um, it's great that you were able to kind of evidence that more information yeah. actually is better. And I'll, I'll just add to that, that I, I think that I mean, I don't think this is just a colonialist mindset. This is an elitist mindset for the most part that just a little information is what's necessary. Uh, but this is a generation now where social media has completely transformed a lot of this. Uh, in the absence of information, other information is going to take its place. It's not gonna be like there's a gap there. Uh, so we're also looking at uh, fake news and digital information, particularly in the context of the vaccine right now. Mm -hmm. One of the most notable things is among our population, uh, previous surveys that have been done looking at similar populations in India have shown very, very high compliance with vaccines. More recently, what we're observing, and I'm talking about the last few weeks, uh, 
from the limited studies that we've done with our students, which isn't representative and needs to be taken with a grain of salt, of course, is that there's actually a lot of vaccine suspicion. Uh, India and Bangladesh are two of the countries that have actually been, compared to the rest of the world, very, very high on vaccine trust. And all of a sudden now, uh, we're seeing that uh, there's very, very, very low uh, mm. vaccine trust. And I'll tell you this, the, these 30,000 students that I work with, they've all come online. Like they're making Facebook accounts every other day now. They're all coming online right now. They didn't have this three, four or five years ago. And so social media is playing a role, uh, presumably in putting out a lot of vaccine skeptic skepticism as well as uh, uh, just general misinformation, I think about it. And so the, the old norm or the old model of saying, let's just give bite-sized correct answers and, and straightforward instructions in an environment where there's so much more misinformation, bad stuff happening, it's actually really dangerous. I think more and more we're gonna to have to move towards providing conceptual understandings as well. So. Yeah, that's super interesting what the role of social media is in that. Um, to um, We're moving towards the end, and I know you can probably talk about this question for a long time, so I'm going to caution you a little bit, <laughs> uh, but I do want to ask you about this because rumor has it that you actually own a cafe in Delhi, which I really wish I'd known about when I lived in Delhi. Um, is it true, and, and how did that come about? Yeah, uh, well, I co-own it. Uh, and clearly I don't do much of the work. My partner is the, the, uh, the muscle behind it. And I would also say the brains. Uh, so I was living in Ahmedabad for a year. I was at IIM Ahmedabad, which is one of the top business schools in India. And Ahmedabad's in Gujarat. And Gujarat is a famous place for finding good, good business partners. Mm -hmm. And so I was in grad school and I wanted to learn about how business worked. And maybe I also had shades of trying to do some kind of get rich quick scheme. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I found a really friendly person who was uh, interested in doing a coffee and tea business. I'd actually hired him to do some website development for another project that I'd run. And we got to it. Uh, the goal was to try and make the Snapple of India, uh, non-milky iced teas, uh -huh. but we, we decided that we would start in the short term by trying to sell products online. Uh, that eventually became a cafe, uh, which is based in Delhi now. Uh, and it's just exciting. Uh, it's we've pre-pandemic, we had about 25 employees. Uh, now it's about five to 10 because of the pandemic. Uh, but it gives me a window into India that quite honestly, I don't, I don't think I would get otherwise, especially being an American. Uh, all of the challenges of small business, which is the bulk of the Indian economy, uh, all of the headaches that you hear about uh, that people oftentimes don't wanna speak on the record about, uh, I've got someone who has to tell me. And so he's always just a phone call away. We've done some really interesting activities uh, with him and with the cafe uh, a couple of years ago. So we take a group of law students out to Delhi every year to learn about how governance in India works. And we meet the Supreme Court justices and we meet the government officials and we meet uh, all these top level people who all make it seem like, you know, India shining, which is right. uh, everything is working perfectly. Uh, but then it's also, we're also very keen to make sure that they understand from the man on the street what the situation can be like. I remember we took our students to the, to the cafe and my business partner just opened up about 
in the last few weeks, all of the strictures and headaches that the government had put on them. Uh, and of course, for instance, uh, so I think three quarters of Delhi is not actually zoned properly. Uh, it's all agricultural land. The city grew too quickly and they didn't rezone the city. So you've always got people coming by who are hassling, uh, trying to, to cause problems. Uh, you've got all kinds of uncoordinated actors. Whenever there's an election, uh, all of the main parties are coming by. I shouldn't say all of the main parties. Most of the main parties are coming by, uh, seeing what kinds of favors can be done. Uh, and he, he just opened up about this. Uh, he mentioned that his landlord, I, I'll always remember this. He mentioned that the landlord, so we rent this area. Mm -hmm. uh, he tells them that the land is owned, but there's no evidence that the land is actually owned. Uh -huh. uh, so he pays somebody and he assumes <laughs> that he's paying the right person uh, for, the, for the rental space. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a, anybody's guess as to what it's, what's going there. Uh, so the students got to engage with it. Afterwards, a lot of them said that it's actually like on the American bar where you've got these, these questions that seem just completely hypothetical and so divorced from reality. Right. Uh, they said that that was actually what they were hearing and trying to reconcile these complicated land property rights, business, you know, small business sorts of uh, things. Uh, they thought it would be more of these hypothetical imaginary questions that they might see on the bar and would never encounter in real life. But lo and behold, it's happening. So I love uh, the idea of this cafe in, in, uh, in South Delhi, I believe, being the kind of the, the, the Stanford site abroad uh, where, where students can experience. <laughs> absolutely. The rule of non-law, I guess. I mean, maybe it's, it's full circle back to where we started. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you so much for um, sharing all your collaborations and projects. I have a sense there's more, but uh, the ones that we talked about today, thank you so much for sharing them with us today. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you. I really enjoy all of the, the great stuff that CSA is doing. It's The podcast has, has been really exciting. I've learned so much about what, what else is going on at Stanford. I try to keep my ear to the ground, but this has been a great endeavor. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much and thank you for your generous words. I also want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the music and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fans,